Welcome to this podcast of the Sunday Message from Hope Gateway, a United Methodist community in Portland, Maine. If you live locally, we'd love to have you join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Visit our website at www.hopegateway.com to learn more. But whether you live near or far, we hope you find this message to be meaningful. Wherever you are, join us in doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. My name is Ophelia, and um, hey, (laughs) to those of you who are new, I just want to give you fair warning that um, it's going to be kind of a heady subject today. Um, We're not always zero to 60 here at Hope Gateway, but I I think that this is an important message, so thank you all for being here. So I wanted to start with... um, this classic ethics dilemma. So imagine that a train is headed down the tracks and there's no way to stop it. And this is you in the middle with that lever. You can pull a lever to change the course of the train. On one track, it will kill five people. And then on the other track, it will kill one. Right now, it's headed down that track to kill five. So will you take the action to move that lever, what would you choose? One death seems better than five, right? But what if you knew that person? What if it were your friend? Thank goodness, though, this is just a test, right? (laughs) But what if it wasn't? What if someone created this problem? created the tracks and the lever and the people. And then, what if someone set the train on the tracks, brought the people onto the two separate ends with no other way to escape? What does that make them? Who would do such a thing? And this is just one of the problems with how we talk about Jesus' death. I thought for most of my life that this was the gospel. That the whole good news was a God who sent their only begotten son to die one of the most excruciating deaths in order to be okay with us. The good news, we say, is that our debts are paid up, so now we can carry on like everything's normal. And some people just call that Christianity. But it's just one version of the story, one theory. And it's called penal substitutionary atonement. See, all of us are looking at the cross from some place on the hill where Jesus was crucified. And from all of our perspectives, There may be different ways to see the cross. But this version that I just described, I think, is toxic. 
Now, remember, we've said in weeks past that toxic Christianity is not just stuff we don't like or stuff that we disagree with or stuff that our pastor told us we shouldn't or shouldn't believe. And it's also not the really, really hard stuff that we wish wasn't true. Toxic Christianity is the stuff that bears bad fruit. And from where I stand, where I see the cross, penal substitutionary atonement bears bad fruit. So there are a lot of resources arguing against penal substitutionary atonement with all the scripture to back it up and all the fancy schmancy exegesis. Um, We don't have time to cover that all and I shouldn't pretend like I read it all either. But what we can do is start a conversation because I think that how we see the cross and moreover how we see the death of Jesus has consequences. Our worldview flows downhill into our actions. So let's revisit an account of that day from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 13 through 25. Pilate called in the high priests, rulers, and the others, and said, You brought this man to me as a disturber of the peace. I examined him in front of all of you and found there was nothing to your charge. And neither did Herod, for he has sent him back here with a clean bill of health. It's clear that he's done nothing wrong, let alone anything deserving death. I'm going to warn him to watch his step and let him go. At that, the crowd went wild. Kill him. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas had been thrown in prison for starting a riot in the city and for murder. Pilate still wanted to let Jesus go and so spoke out again. But they kept shouting back, crucify him. He tried a third time. Before what crime? I found nothing in him deserving death, so I'm going to warn him to watch his step and let him go. But they kept at it, a shouting mob, demanding that he be crucified. And finally, they shouted him down. Pilate caved in and gave them what they wanted. He released the man thrown in prison for rioting and murder and gave them Jesus to do whatever they wanted. As they let him off, they made Simon, a man from Cyrene, who happened to be coming in from the countryside, carry the cross behind Jesus. A huge crowd of people followed, along with women weeping and carrying on. At one point, Jesus turned to the women and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves and for your children. The time is coming when they'll say, lucky the people who never conceived, lucky the wombs that never gave birth, lucky the breasts that never gave milk. Then they'll start calling to the mountains, fall down on us, calling to the hills, cover us up. If people do these things to a live green tree, can you imagine what they'll do with dead wood? Two others, both criminals, were taken along with him for execution. When they got to the place called Skull Hill, or Golgotha, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, said Jesus, before he died, before he was resurrected, as he still lived, forgive them. During his lifetime, Jesus did a lot. 
And I don't mean that he had a full resume, because as Pastor Sarah pointed out last week, by lots of metrics, Jesus was kind of a failure. He was hated by the Roman Empire. He made a lot of religious enemies. He didn't have a home. He wasn't married. Though my fellow millennials may agree in the room, he was really good at friendship. This is a meme that says, nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. True. But Jesus' life was his ministry. And um, his ministry was rich. It was, it was countercultural. And it was complicated. It took into account where he lived and what was going on around him and the powers that were around him. And so often when we tell the story of Jesus, we leave that little part out. And I mean, we actually leave out all of it. In the Apostles' Creed, which some churches recite every week and is supposed to tell the whole story of the Christian faith, folks often skip over the whole of Jesus' life. So the Apostles' Creed starts, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So he was born... Then he suffered, then he died. What an obituary. <laughs> Imagine if it were yours. You lived and then you died. Someone unfamiliar with Jesus might hear the Apostles' Creed and ask, what did Jesus do during his lifetime? His lifetime was his whole ministry. Every person he met, every miracle that he performed, the hearts he transformed, the powers he confounded, the people that he healed and the tables that he turned. Jesus didn't come just to die. He came to show us how to live. Or as Father Richard Rohr, one of our desert fathers said, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our minds about God. Penal substitutionary atonement forms the theological foundation for some Christians, but I think it's a foundation that deserves re-examination. Because how we define the purpose of Jesus' existence has enormous effects on how we define and do everything else. It says that in order for us to be reconciled in our imperfect nature to a perfect God, a perfect sacrifice must be given in our place. And only Jesus is perfect enough for that job. If an all-powerful God needed blood atonement in order to reconcile God's self to humanity, is that really how God would use that power? Penal substitutionary atonement says that if Jesus didn't die for our sins, then God would have to torture us for all of eternity. Can you imagine carrying out a sentence like that yourself for anyone in the world, existing or that formerly existed? Is there a single person whose life deserves to be met with an eternity of unending, eternal conscious torment? According to this theory, all of us do. 
But if we cannot carry out such a sentence on anyone, then how can God, who is the epitome of love? And then why would we even want to spend an eternity with that God? If Jesus came to be a sacrificial lamb, then his sacrifice was in his humanity, to live and to die. But God would not choose to torture and murder God's own. In a worldview governed by the idea that God sent Jesus to die for our sins, it's hard to imagine a God that is good. Or we can imagine a God who is good, but at the cost of our understanding of what's good and what's evil. We kind of lose our bearings on being able to judge right from wrong. And in doing so, we subject each other to evil in the name of God, and we call that good. Penal substitutionary atonement makes it easy to imagine a God who would inflict harm on us and call it love. We did it in the Middle Ages, in the 14th and 15th century, when 60% of Europe died during the Black Death. God was punishing people for their faithlessness, we believed. Some said it was because of women wearing jewelry. Oops. Some blamed it on European Jews. And this is somehow supposed to be God's love for Europe? We did it in the colonization of the Americas with mass abductions and genocide of indigenous peoples. Christian boarding schools on native lands carried out egregious harm in an attempt to Christianize Native Americans. They said, kill the Indian and save the man. And this is supposed to be God's love for indigenous peoples? And we still do it today. We say that queer people or the increase in women's freedoms are to blame for natural disasters. The televangelist Pat Robertson famously said that God sent Hurricane Katrina to punish America for allowing Ellen DeGeneres to host the Emmys. And this is supposed to be God's love for America? As Pastor Sarah has said before, sometimes our job as Christians is to improve God's reputation. To sully God's reputation with evil is exactly what it means to take God's name in vain. Penal substitutionary atonement gives us permission to hurt each other and call it love. And it cautions us to call love hatred. Our own God does it, so why shouldn't we? See, if God can achieve peace through war... If God can give us life by inflicting death, if God can make us clean by doing something so unclean that it goes against God's own commandments, then what's to stop us from doing the same? This toxic notion makes love out to be one hell of a bad idea. Penal substitutionary atonement is medieval, brutal, and a way of thinking about justice that's derived from a specific cultural and time-bound landscape. This is a god of a court system, and it's a god who is judge, jury, and executioner. The belief that God sent Jesus to die to atone for our sins became popularized by Anselm of Canterbury, an English Benedictine in the 12th century, and again later by Charles Hodge, an American theologian who lived in the mid-1800s. In the following century, 
Hodge's ideas became some of the defining characteristics of fundamentalist and evangelical Christianity today. The good news of Jesus Christ, we say in this tradition, is that our debts are paid up. Penal substitutionary atonement is about retributive justice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. A friend from my more evangelical days once told me that Jesus' death was needed because we are born into sin and measured against an infinitely sinless entity, God. And so the penalty, no matter how light it is, has to be infinite loss and sacrifice. But Jesus showed us through his life that he's not about that. He's about restorative justice, justice that reestablishes relationship. He reconciles outcasts to community. He heals the wound of the very Roman guard that came to arrest him. He forgives his friends who betray him, and then he puts them in charge of carrying on his legacy. He says on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is about restorative justice. We have made him out to be about our kind of justice, which is bound by our limited imagination. But I want to share with you an alternative to this Western way of resolving conflict. Um, in the Diné or Navajo tradition, they have a peacemaking tradition, and it's a parallel or alternative system to the Western court system that they also use. And so to mediate conflicts, communities elect peace chiefs who encourage participants to restore harmony and relationship rather than seek revenge. The idea is that everyone belongs to clans, and clans belong to ke, which is like a form of being and harmony that preexisted humanity. And so, in contrast to European judicial practices, which uses authority figures and strangers to enforce rules, the Navajo system replies, it relies on the philosophy that the law existed before time in order to help humans live harmoniously. So today, people can refer matters to the peacemaking program if they want to, instead of the um, Western court system, in order to seek resolution and preserve harmony in the family. The idea is that court intervention often broke families apart instead of preserving them. And so rather than having a court command the suffering of an offender, it says um, we would rather offer a reduction in future crime and reparation to victims. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk this week about a story of justice and forgiveness that's been on a lot of our minds. So I'll bet most preachers are saying something today about Brant Jean and his brother Botham. But what we have to say and what we see may not all be the same. Like the death of Jesus on the cross, how we see Botham Jean's death boils down to our worldview and our relationship with empire. Botham Jean was a 26-year-old preacher, leader, and singer in his own church choir. And that's him at the pulpit back there. He lived in Dallas, Texas. And last year, while he was eating ice cream in his own apartment, a white cop entered his apartment and shot and murdered him. She claimed self-defense, and she said she had walked up to the wrong apartment thinking that it was hers. 
But she ignored all her training as a police officer, and she ignored the signs that she was intruding into another person's home. And when Botham, Botham Jean got up to see who had entered his home, she shot him in the heart and killed him. A year later, last week, his murderer was tried and found guilty of murder, for which she's going to serve 10 years in prison. After the sentencing of Botham's murderer, Botham's brother, Brant, gave a moving speech. And in it, he forgives her. He forgives his brother's murderer. He said that he wished she didn't have to go to jail. And afterward, he hugged her. How Brant Jean chose to grieve the loss of his brother is his business, not ours. But how we react to that act of forgiveness that Brant Jean extended, that part is our business. And it's a matter of how we encounter Jesus at the cross. I've been thinking all week about penal substitutionary atonement, and I've been thinking a lot about Brant Jean's forgiveness and all the fibers in between the two penal substitutionary atonement and the temptation for a whole society to receive absolution through the forgiveness of one person. Penal substitutionary atonement says that the violent way that Jesus died was not only unavoidable, but necessary because this was God's plan all along to absolve us. And it ignores the context in which Jesus was killed because it's about what Jesus, what God rather, ordained. It ignores the fact that he was tortured and murdered by an empire with seemingly endless power. It was God's will, so it's all fine, right? It's fair. And why should we fault the empire for carrying out God's will? But there are other ways to see the cross complex and harder ways that may yet yield better fruit. The theologian, Dr. James Cone, sees it this way. He says, And yet the Christian gospel is more than a transcendent reality, more than going to heaven when I die to shout salvation as I fly. It is also an imminent reality, a powerful, liberating presence among the poor right now in their midst building them up where they are torn down and propping them up on every leaning side. The gospel is found wherever poor people struggle for justice, fighting for their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In the story, or the reality, of the Jean family, we are bystanders at the foot of the cross where Botham Jean died. And it is a cross, in the same way that the cross was devised to torture and execute subjects of the Roman Empire, over-policing in the prison industrial complex are how we express dominion over the subjects of today's empire. We're a crowd with varied reactions to Branch Jean's decision to forgive and hug his brother's murderer. Some of us celebrated. Maybe some of us felt like this was a happy ending. Some of us felt discomfort. And maybe some of us felt betrayed. And I think that what we felt depended on how we saw Brant Jean's forgiveness. Do we see it in a vacuum separated from the hundreds of years of oppression of this empire? Because the reality is that the empire of this nation has relied on the subjugation of black people for its prosperity. And this nation's conscience has relied on the forgiveness of black people. 
But if we celebrate forgiveness as though it were something sweet, a happy ending, then we miss the context of the cross. We miss the context in which Botham Jean was killed. And we miss the context that black men are killed by police officers at astonishing rates. And their loved ones have every right to demand justice for that. We pretend the world is fairer than it really is. Foremost, Christians who follow in the way of a crucified man must see the death of Botham Jean as avoidable and unnecessary. Christians must imagine a world where black people do not have to die like this, surrendered to the cross. The Peruvian theologian Friar Gustavo Gutierrez Marino said, the denunciation of injustice implies the rejection of the use of Christianity to legitimize the established order. And what he means is that to commit to justice as Jesus did during his lifetime and that ended his lifetime, we have to reject the use of Christianity to uphold the parts of our system that stand for oppression. We cannot co-opt Brant Jean's forgiveness of his brother's murderer and say, that's how people who are persecuted should act if they want to be like Christ. Because that ignores the context, the established order. It skips restoration and goes on looking for absolution where it has not yet come. If we want to be like Jesus, then we, the onlookers and citizens of the Roman Empire, must reject the notion that God sent Jesus to die to atone for our sins. Jesus was tortured and killed because of our sins. And for that, for all of our, for our collective human failings, we are forgiven, but now comes restoration. Jesus was not the only crucified man of his time. In fact, he wasn't even the only person crucified by the Roman Empire that day. But he understood full well what he was doing. When Jesus says, forgive them, God, for they know not what they do, that's to us. But not knowing is not our eternal human condition. We get to know. And in fact, we have to know. We see the man on the cross and the two beside him. And the whole of the empire that devised crucifixion as a means of torture and death. We see the preacher with an angelic voice murdered in his own home, and we see the empire too. So, which version of the crucifixion do we want to see? Brant Jean's forgiveness and embrace are not ours to cash in to pay the debts of our anti blackness. Restoration is not satisfied with forgiveness and an embrace. It's only just begun. Brant Jean's mother, Alison Jean, spoke about restoration in her own speech. She asked for better training and more accountability for the Dallas Police Department. Neither does Jesus' death absolve us of the responsibility of God's grace and the opportunity to be in relationship with the Spirit. That has only begun too. So let me be clear. I believe that we are forgiven for our human failings. 
I think the God who created and knows us wants to be in relationship with us. And because the Spirit of God is in us and is active, the work of establishing relationship is done. Before us, the work of reconciling heaven and earth doesn't stop with God's forgiveness and mercy. It starts when we say yes to following in the way of Jesus. It starts with recognizing all the crosses and the empire that put them up. We are forgiven and we are embraced. And that's only the beginning. Amen. The goodness of the Lord is the kindness of the Lord. With every breath we take, the gift of life and grace, the power of the Lord is the meekness of the Lord, who bore humanity with great humility. Let your mercy go